you're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian. We're here with another uh, interview I think you guys are going to like. We have on the show with us Dr. Michael Lynch. Dr. Michael Lynch, he teaches ancient language and humanities at Delaware Valley Classical School in Newcastle, Delaware. He's the author of John Davenant's Hypothetical Universalism. And uh, he's also a teacher at Davenant Hall, part of the Davenant Institute. And he's got a lecture series coming out. Make sure you guys check that out. It's on Christology. Um, I actually helped edit it. So I've actually seen all the episodes and it is really, really good material. And hopefully we'll give you guys a little preview of it today. But uh, Michael, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. So one of the things that I really loved about some of your work is it's very historically informed. It's very theologically informed. But I think you're a pretty engaging guy. Like when you're up there in the, uh, in the, in the pulpit and you're talking about some of these doctrines that are difficult. And one of the particular doctrines that I thought you did a really, you're really helpful in helping me kind of clarify uh, and articulate was the doctrine of well, really it was two doctrines. It was the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, and we and we can talk a little bit about that. And it was also the doctrine of limited atonement. And uh, I know the atonement itself has been an area of study for you for a while. So maybe just to introduce you to our audience, what are what, what personally got you interested in talking about the atonement, particularly with uh, things like limited atonement or, you know, what, what happened at the cross, different types of things like that. Right. So um, I've always been interested, particularly in historical theology and obviously the debates that have went on in the history of theological discourse. Um, uh, so I did my undergraduate degree at the Moody Bible Institute uh, then I went to Reformed Theological Seminary, got my MDiv there. Then I went to Calvin Seminary, did my PhD in the history of Christianity. And um, while I, I I kind of grew up in the young, restless, and reform movement, so I was well aware of you know the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement and kind of the attacks on it that were happening uh, in the early 2000s, especially. Um, so that's kind of when I was doing my undergraduate degree. When I went to RTS, um, I started to realize um, that the Reformed tradition, particularly on the extent of the atonement, was wider than I had uh, kind of been led to believe by you know, reading, you know, R.C. Sproul or something like that. Um, so I eventually started thinking about what I might do my Ph.D. work on. And I came across John Davenant, uh, a librarian there at RTS, uh, was very familiar with kind of uh, this minority position among the reform tradition, um, holding to what's now called hypothetical universalism. And so I went and uh did my PhD on John Davenant um, and his doctrine or his kind of position on the extent of the atonement. Um, and that kind of led into other bled into other issues like penal substitutionary atonement, because um, often defenders of penal substitutionary atonement feel it necessary or deem it necessary to hold to a limited atonement because of the way that particularly John Owen argues for his position on limited atonement, the kind of basic way of arguing it is uh, forever uh, for, for those whom Christ died or made a penal satisfaction for those same sinners and those same sins uh, must be expiated and must be forgiven. And so therefore, there's this uh, dilemma in which if he atoned for all sins, then all of the sins for which he atoned must be forgiven. And therefore, if he died for all, then all sinners must be forgiven. Um, and that leads to some sort of universalism. On the other hand, if he only died or if he only made satisfaction for certain sins of certain sinners, then only those certain sins of certain sinners um, will be atoned for or will be um, 
forgiven. And so um, that's how kind of penal substitutionary atonement and the extent of the atonement question kind of relate to each other. What kind of uh, which uh, RTS did you go to? Uh, RTS Jackson. Oh, the mothership. I went to RTS Orlando. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, I've never been there, but I, I know of some good guys down there like uh, Swain and yeah. Alan. So yeah, anyways. yeah. They were, they were great, great professors. But uh, yeah, when you mentioned the Young Wrestlers Informed, I mean, I, I kind of grew up in the same time period and read Sproul and, you know, Piper and then Packer and then, and through Packer kind of Owen, you know, or at least him talking about Owen. And that was a common kind of logical step you would take where it's like if christ died for all and they're all their sins are forgiven that would lead to a universalism so you know the the kind of everyone limits the atonement type of thing um but it was interesting that you were saying there's a wider kind of spectrum on that and i'd be interested to hear about that but maybe maybe just to bring it down to to maybe more layman's level how would you explain like what is penal substitutionary atonement. I mean, it's three words that sounds imposing, but how would you describe that doctrine to someone who's maybe not too familiar with it? Yeah. Um, even in the term penal substitutionary atonement, you get all the kind of uh, basic um, parts to the doctrine in the terminology itself. So penal has to do with law, Substitution, obviously, there's some sort of um, substitution that's happening, and uh, we we can talk more about that. And then, obviously, atonement um, is a is a tricky word, uh, largely because it's not really used in kind of cla- uh, kind of classic uh, Christological work of Christ um, uh, works, um, but it came into English, and um, here. I, uh, I, in my lectures, at least, what I did was I noted that it's uh, expiatory. That is that it um, that it uh, uh, brings about forgiveness in some way. Um, it, it it covers over um, uh, the penal uh, demands of the law. Right. That is that the person who sins. Uh, is to be condemned and it covers that over in some way. And so anyways, penal substitutionary atonement in the way that I explained it is I went back into the Old Testament and I noted three different things about how kind of atonement worked in the Old Testament. I noted that it's vicarious. That is, it's by a um, uh, a um, uh, a substitute right uh secondly that it's by an innocent uh, innocent substitute that is a substitute that according to the law doesn't um doesn't have any sort of uh guiltiness attached to the the innocent victim and then finally that it's expiatory that is that it um brings about forgiveness in some way um and so penal satisfaction um holds uh at minimum to the idea that the um that the guiltiness which attaches to sin uh to to a sinner um is substituted um in a uh vicarious victim and so the vicarious victim is treated as a sinner in the place of uh the the uh uh the sinner himself or herself and that um what's going on in penal substitutionary atonement at least it seems to me classically is not so much that the sin of the sinner is being transferred to the um vicarious victim uh but rather that the um that the guilt which attaches to the sin is being kind of uh, transferred, as it were. The guilt uh, uh, that that results from the sin is being transferred to the victim so that the victim isn't a sinner it's himself, right? So that Jesus isn't rightfully condemned, but rather he's 
taking on the penalty that the law demanded uh, that sin, that sin uh, demands that that Jesus takes on the the penalty and that's what's actually being substituted is is that um, in penal substitutionary atonement Jesus takes on the guilt and the 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 due punishment that results from that guilt um in the stead of someone or in the place of someone and so that's what i tried to note is is that christ um uh took on the 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 penal um guilt uh that was deserved uh in the place of sinners um rather than rather than in the way that sometimes it's popularly explained namely that um, you have these, you have our sins, and those sins are transferred into the account of Jesus, such that Jesus now is a guilty sinner. No, he's being treated as guilty. He's receiving the punishment that's due uh, the guilt of that sin, rather than being properly said to be like guilty. Um, he is an innocent victim uh, in the same way that like the lambs and goats in the Old Testament, we wouldn't we wouldn't say they became sinners, but rather they they are killed. Why? Because our sin demands death. And so that's what's going on is, is that they're getting the punishment that's due to sin. That's what's being transferred in penal substitutionary atonement. And the penal aspect is that there's a law, there's a lawgiver, God, um, and there's a law that he's laid down. And he's seeking to uphold that law and um, uh, meet the ends of that law, which are multiple, right? Um, all law is trying to uh, keep people from doing wrong. It's trying to show them what uh, what is the penalty due to uh, breaking that law. And it's also trying to uphold the, the lawgiver's um, – kind of role in giving that law such that it um, uh, protects kind of his righteousness and his holiness. And that's what penal substitution, all of those ends are trying to be met in uh, penal substitutionary atonement. It, it seems like when I've listened to critiques of penal substitutionary atonement and, you know, when you were talking about how there's a vicarious substitute, they're not, because I have heard it, said that way the kind of the way that you said people will formulate it is that our bank account of sin you know depletes in our account and then becomes Jesus's account like he his bank account is now filled with our sin or something like that yeah um but instead you're saying no he's not he doesn't uh he's not imputed our sin or i guess in in that sense or or well, it's not being transferred. So, in, so one of the things that I wanted to note is, is the difference between the nature of imputation, and the nature of okay, transfer. Yeah. yeah okay. Right. So, a uh, transfer uh, is where something goes from one place to another, but in imputation, it's not so much a transfer of stuff to another place, but it's rather um, one treating treating another um uh as if something had been transferred even though nothing has actually been transferred so he is being imputed our sin if what we mean by that is he's being treated as a sinner he was mm. treated as a sinner in the place of sinners on the cross he's being treated as if and the the important bit is the as if he had sinned he right. is treated as right. if he had sinned, right? The wrath of God is poured yeah. out upon him um, as if he had sinned. But the difference between transfer and imputation is, is that it allows for us to maintain both that he's treated as a sinner while all the time not being a sinner, right? And it, he th th that in no way was he a sinner, but he was um, – well, and, and, and something I emphasized that is often not emphasized in the critiques of penal substitutionary atonement is, is that he's willingly um, being treated as a sinner in the place of sinners, right? right? Um, th this is a willful 
endeavor. This is not something where, you know, like the father asks the son to do this and the son, you know, kind of has to do it because he just um, because he's the son or something like that. But that um, there's only one divine will and the divine will chose uh, in this marvelous uh, kind of uh, imputative transaction uh to the the son willingly um uh puts himself in the place of sinners in order to fulfill the law the demands of the law in the place of sinners in order that they might now be able to be made righteous with god that's a really helpful clarification and and i think you actually mentioned in your lectures and you were talking about kind of nt wright had I think he says he says he holds to some form of penal substitutory atonement. I think, but but he was criticizing the idea of imputation, where like it's this gas or this substance that can float from the judge to a defendant or something like that. And, yeah, uh, he was critiquing yeah. that that was the vision that people had, and it seems like you're saying, well, well no, that's yeah, not he, what we're saying. He goes after imputation now when he's talking about it. Uh, at least in the context that I had in mind in my lectures, he's talking about justification again. He's talking about righteousness bits uh, being transferred. So Christ's active righteousness, um, mm. you know, his fulfilling of the law in our place, uh, not not just in his uh, uh, passion, but also in his life. Those kind of righteousness bits, again, are being like transferred into um, our account as if now I have in my account righteousness, but that's, uh, again, that is a, that is a, uh, um, an eliding of the two notions of a transfer and an imputation and imputation is a type of transfer, but the type of transfer that's happening is not bits of righteousness into someone else's account as much as it is, um, we we want to say that when I'm when justification happens, when I'm uh, deemed to be righteous, it's that I'm being treated as righteous, even though in my own account, all there is is unrighteousness. Right. I'm a sinner being declared righteous. Mm -hmm. It's not as if I am now have all the righteousness bits that Jesus did as if Christ or as if God no longer sees that unrighteousness in my account, it's that he sees me in light of Christ and what Christ has done. And that's what imputation is in the same way. We, we do this all the time in kind of life um, where, you know, let's say we have, uh, I have a friend who, whom you're going to meet for the first time. And you let, let's say um, you might be predisposed to uh, think bad of him for some reason or another, right? You've heard some bad things about him. Um, perhaps he wrote a book that uh, you just think uh, was terrible and you just have a very low opinion of him. And I might say to you something like, uh, Brian, I, I would like you to treat him and think of him uh, in the same way as as you think of me, right? I want you to ignore all the kind of bad pre predispositions you might have towards him, and instead, I want you to think of him as you think of me. S supposing, of course, that you have a high value about how you think of me, right? And uh, and, and so you would be imputing. My righteousness, the righteousness you judge that I have, you would be then imputing that to him by treating him as if he were me, as if he were me. We're right. not saying that anything's changed in the person, right. right? The person has not gotten anything, right? It's simply a um, uh, what we might say. It's it, it's it's a. Um, you as the kind of uh, lawgiver of judging who is righteous and unrighteous have decided to treat him um, uh, by, by your kind of the law of your mind to treat him as righteous on account of my own righteousness. And that's what imputation is. And that's what 
what we want to say is going on with the imputation uh, of how Christ is treated as if he is a sinner. And that's also what we want to do in justification when we say that um, uh, God uh, uh, imputes Christ's righteousness to us. What we really just mean by that most fundamentally is, is that Christ treats us as righteous on account of Christ's own righteousness insofar as he was uh, the second Adam. So how do we deal with the legal fiction objection that that often comes up where if somebody in a, in a law court setting, you know, how could you say to somebody that you are, you know, justified if you're not actually righteous? Um, how, how, or even, even with your example, how would be saying, you know, treat me, treat him as though, as you would treat me when you're innocent, you know, sure. how do you, how, and how, how, does one bear guilt for someone else if they sure. haven't committed the crime in, in like yeah. a legal setting? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I think there are a couple ways that these things can be attacked. Um, uh, I think our um, uh, our union with Christ is one of the main ways that this can be attacked. That there is that there is a union uh, insofar as Christ was. Um, made man, this is one of the ways that he is able, he, uh, in his person, um, takes on legally all of humanity, or if you hold to limited atonement, he takes on at least, uh, the persons of all the elect, um, in, in, in his own person. This is one of the reasons why we insist on the need for incarnation for the sake of a, an atonement, right? Um, is, is that he needed to be made like us, um, uh, such that he could, um, uh, perform a righteousness in our place. And so I think that that's one of, one of the issues. And the other issues is, is that, uh, in penal substitutionary atonement, there's only two actors. There's the sinner and there's only there's God um, because Jesus is God hmm. and he is the lawgiver. And so I think we need to also say that God has a right to as the lawgiver to determine um, how this works out. And so part of my concern, I don't really raise this in my lectures, but part of my concern is whether or not we give God the sort of right to lay down the terms of how this justice works, right? We don't start with we don't start with human law and say, well, it needs to happen in this way because this is the 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 way that we always do it in accordance with human law. So yeah, it's true that a judge uh, is never going to be able to. Um, uh, he, we don't allow for substitutes in human courts, right? We don't say, you know, uh, you're guilty of murder and we'll let your mother, you know, take the, uh, take the punishment that's due you, um, um, for that. But, but, and here's, here's the difference in that, right? The person offended in penal substitutionary atonement is the one that is actually taking on the punishment himself. Yeah. Right. So in there, in, in that situation that I talked about in the human courts, you would have three parties. You'd have an innocent victim who has not been sinned against. Right. Or a crime has not been uh, made against, namely the mother of the 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 son who's committed the sin of murder right and then you have the crime the 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 one who's committed the crime and then you have the lawgiver right but in this case we only have two um parties we have the offended party god and we have the offending party the sinner and here the offended party is also the one who decides for the substitution. And so uh, we just don't have that in human courts. That That is not something that happens where the offended is also the one who's willing to take the punishment, right? We don't have judges who are then saying, well, I, I, I will, right? And we, and we can't really have that because a judge, although the judge sits in kind of 
the place of the lawgiver, we might say in this instance, you know, the United States of America or something like that, he has no right to then, uh, as it were, say that he uh, sufficiently is uh, um, uh, in the place of the lawgiver per se, because he doesn't uh, he doesn't stand in the place of the United States himself. Right. If that if the United States were able to do such a thing, uh, then sure. But there's no person, as it were, that represents the whole of the United States. I mean, not even our president. We don't have, you know, perhaps in a monarchy like an absolute monarchy or something like that, uh, such a thing could perhaps work. And, and we want we might not we might not think that that such a thing. But even then, most of our crimes are not just. There's multiple victims, right? There's the victim of the law, and then there's the victim of the sins to which – or the crime to which it was committed, right? If it was murder or something like that. Here, however, we have the divine being, right, to whom all sins and all crimes are ultimately committed, and he's the one himself deciding to become the substitutionary victim. And so I think there's a lot of dissimilarity between human law and divine law. And getting back to the original point that I was wanting to make, I don't think we, I think in much of the debate that happens over penal substitutionary atonement, we don't give a, um, we don't have the sort of kind of this uh, disposition of charity towards God as just wanting to give him that right in general to to uh, to to kind of this presumption of justice. Instead, there's oftentimes a presumption of injustice, right, uh, towards God in the way that he set it up. But I think I think I think that if we come with an attitude of the presumption that this is just and then try to work out the logic from there rather than trying to come with a presumption of injustice and then try to get God out of the dock as it were yeah. I think that it I think that most of it is relieved um at least it's relieved to my satisfaction and there are there are there are some really helpful um uh books that deal with this although people don't read them today uh the the one that I would just highlight uh R.L. Dabney um, Southern Presbyterian in the 19th century wrote a little book on penal substitutionary atonement. Um, I'm forgetting the exact title of it at the moment, but if you look up R.L. Dabney penal substitution, you'll you'll find it. Um, anyways, he actually tries he 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 as a um, as a way of trying to placate. Uh, these arguments against penal substitutionary atonement, including the legal fiction uh, argument, um, he, as it were, puts God in the dock and seeks to respond to those arguments. And I won't be able to do full justice to all the different arguments yeah. that are made against it, but he does a fabulous, marvelous job trying to note uh, both the continuities and discontinuities between human law and divine law and argues for, to, to my mind, uh, uh, no pun intended, very satisfactorily uh, <laughs> for penal substitution. That was one of the highlights, I think, of the lectures that you did. That point alone, that God is not uh, a third part, or, or rather, yeah, there's it's not three parties, it's two. And I don't know if this cashes out fully, the, what I'm about to say, but in my mind, I kind of think of it as like, interpersonal offenses you do absorb an offense to yourself if you do if you treat them as if they didn't offend you or, or, or i mean there's there's some kind of self-absorption thing that you can think of or perceive that doesn't quite fit into the law court thing because the judge is this impartial kind of person over you know this issue whereas with god and man the, like you said, the one who is offended is also the judge, who's also the sacrifice, who's also the one who makes atonement. Yep. And so it is unique. And now just you explaining that, just thinking about how you build your lectures going from, you know, you, when you talk about the incarnation, we're starting from, you know, this makes sense. Now let's try to like find language where there are certain things that are unique and that we know through revelation. And, and perhaps I never really right. thought about PSA as part of 
that kind of category of thing. Maybe not exactly, but there's an idea where this seems to be what is revealed to us as the the way that things work. And we should go in with that sense right. of charity of going, okay, it works. Now let's try to find language to distill that rather than going, let's get God off the hook because it doesn't work from the beginning. Right. It seems to me ridiculous to not start um, the discussion with the Old Testament and the way that the mm. Old Testament sets the framework for how atonement is actually made. Um, it, it, it seems to me that um, atonement, while it deals with law, um, and, and, and that would mean that some aspects of it are certainly going to be um, naturally revealed. That is, it's um, it's going to, and we're talking about things like justice. And justice, I would I, I would want to say, is is something, and that God's justice and right and wrong are something that are naturally revealed. Um, the the way that a divine being is placated, um, uh, the way that atonement is made is going to be something that is not naturally revealed, right? right? So we know in the same way that while we know that God is to be worshipped, how he is to be worshipped is not a part of natural theology, but that is a part of natural, uh, that is a part of revealed theology. He had to tell us um, how he is to reveal. So we might say that um, God is going to forgive sins or no, that God could remit sins. We might even say that is something that I could totally understand via natural theology, right? Um, that God could forgive sins, but how he could forgive sins and still be righteous in these sorts of things, I think are things that are revealed in scripture and that we need to let that set the agenda rather mm -hmm. than allow kind of our natural kind of views of well, this is this is the way that I think that a divine being could, uh, would need to be placated, such that then he could forgive people right. of their right. sins or crimes or something. In the same way that I don't think that we should think about worship and how we worship God in those same sorts of ways, as if we think that like by our own nature we could somehow figure out the way that a divine being ought to be worshipped, but rather that needs to be specifically and specially revealed. So, yeah. And, and each of the elements too. I mean, even when I was using my example of like, well, how can a, an innocent person take the place of you? It's like, well, we're not just talking about an innocent person. We're talking about in the incarnate God, man. I mean, there's a unique union of human and divine. We're talking about a, a heavenly kind of, law court in which he's the judge as well we're talking about sin we're not talking about even just like breaking a penal code i mean there's right. so many elements that are right in the class of their own that yep. we should expect ourselves to almost to, to first uh not make ourselves the framework but let's but submit ourselves to the framework that he presents and then try to work from there absolutely um absolutely now before we move on i, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, limited atonement or definite atonement, but there was, uh, when you talked about treating Jesus as if he were a sinner, um, one particular point people talk about is the wrath of God poured out on Christ. Um, what is that wrath? I mean, I remember one of our, uh, one of our, uh, guys in, in, in like a discipleship group we have, he was asking, did, did Jesus, how can three days of suffering atone for an eternity in hell? You know, how, how does the, how does the, uh, What's the mechanism of that? What when we talk about God's wrath against Jesus, what is it? You know, is is He cutting off the Trinity? Is He uh, equating three days of wrath with an eternity of wrath? How does that? How should we think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think at the most basic level, um, the wrath of God is God's displeasure towards sin um and so um uh it is it is that um it is it is one of those effects of the of uh, uh, of guilt and so when jesus is treated as a sinner he um is being treated um as as if 
he had um, broken the divine law and feels uh, the sense both in his soul and in his body, the displeasure, the divine displeasure that is attached to as an effect of our sin. And so I have no problem talking about um, uh, Jesus bearing the wrath of God in our stead because the wrath of God is that divine displeasure that God is showing Jesus. But of course, um, even there and even people like Owen and others note that there's a there's um, kind of a dissymmetry attached to it because he he is he is feeling that uh, that displeasure, knowing that the whole time he has not sinned, he is taking it on willfully uh, for others, and he is being treated as a sinner all while all the while not being a sinner and not in in my lectures i noted some of these things i was trying to find um places where i discussed this it was perhaps in the previous one um anyways turretin actually uh discusses this in a paragraph and i'm i'm not going to be able to find it at the moment where he discusses um oh what it means for Christ to bear the wrath of God. Vitzius does this as well. And I would, I would just point to those sorts of places, but at the end of the day, um, uh, he, he felt, uh, divine displeasure, um, not displeasure in him being the son, um, not displeasure at, um, uh, insofar as he was righteous, indeed, uh, I, I note uh, this in my lecture at one point or another, I said, God is, is at the height of his pleasure towards the son as he's doing this, because he is fulfilling exactly the plan that, that the divine will had set to do um, in eternity past. Um, but the displeasure that he's feeling is the displeasure towards sin. Um, and so, right. And so we, we, we need to carefully balance the truth that God is never displeased with the son at any point. And yet he is feeling all the displeasure that he that he can feel as the God man, as the innocent victim, um, as both God and man, um, that can be felt insofar as he's being treated as a sinner. So th those are the two, that's the circle and the square that we want to right. kind of hold together. And again, I think um, the reform tradition has. Um, been able to helpfully uh, discuss these sorts of things, um, but I would I would turn you towards people like Turretin, Fitzius, and others who discuss um, how to square that circle. I think I actually remember from your lectures you made a point about how you don't want to think about wrath in terms of like like metric tons or like a, a measurement of things. Yeah, and that that what Christ suffered can be an equivalent. To eternity, it's not like a balance sheet. Sure, sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, first off, um, the wrath of God that's poured out on the reprobate um, is eternal, um, and um, uh, whereas whereas for Christ it was not eternal, right? Uh, yeah, and and so if if we think about wrath in a kind of crass pecuniary sort of way in which we're, we're again talking about like wrath bits or like number quotas or something like that. Uh, the, the reform tradition has often said that the, 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 the wrath was um, uh, a just equivalent to the wrath that is poured out on the reprobate, uh, the unrepentant reprobate uh, in hell, but it, 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 it it's not, 
the exact same. Right. Right. right? Um, yeah. and, and it can't be the exact same for all the reasons that I noted, but especially for the fact that he is the God man, that he doesn't stay uh, under that wrath, but that that wrath is temporary. Right. He 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 arrives. Right. He, he, he is raised from the grave. So anyways. Well, let's yeah. uh, let's talk a little bit about limited atonement <laughs> a, a little bit. I don't know if you can only talk a little bit, but, <laughs> but this is something also I, I found really enlightening about your lectures. And we touched on it a little bit earlier in this interview where you talked about how the idea is, you know, that Christ, I guess the I guess you could say limited atonement is just Christ died effectually for some. But I guess even the word effectually can, you know, you can. I have to tease that out. But I think in most people's minds, I think in the average you know, Christian's mind, it's the idea that Jesus kind of died for everybody. And there's this pool of forgiveness that floats in the sky. And when you believe that like a window of that forgiveness pool opens up and it pours out onto you, like it's kind of like, at least in my mind, that that's always kind of the old conception before I learned about limited atonement. Um, but in in sort of the reform doctrine, it's 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 really about um I've heard it phrased in the way of did Christ basically die for the potential to be saved? And the reformed tradition, it seems, would say no, he died that actual real sinners would be saved. Um but you were talking about how you saw a little more broad of a range. So maybe flesh that out a little bit. When you talk about limited atonement, what are some ways that maybe we need to uh, what what are some cautions you would throw? What are some yeah. caveats? You know, what are your yeah. thoughts? Yeah. So to start with your illustration about how like your average Christian who hasn't been taught tulip or something like that thinks about these things, I think that they think about the atonement in the way that you mentioned it is is that uh, Christ was intro- uh, the the reason that Christ came was to make a satisfaction for all people's sins and then that allows for that allows God now to forgive whomever believes and when they believe they open up heaven and forgiveness rains down on them now uh limited atonement says um well, there's all sorts of reasons why limited atonement wouldn't like that picture just in and of itself. Mm-hmm. First off, um, they would say things like um, uh, if Christ made satisfaction for even our unbelief, um, then on what grounds can God um, – not forgive the person if he if he died for the sin of unbelief itself in other words if unbelief has been already merited by Christ as for as to be forgiven then there's no there's no ground on which for whomever he's died you know that 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 they not be saved ultimately now we're going to get in nooks and crannies if i go too far down this this route but let me just say that it seems to me that the the kind of um reform position that you see in the uh among like the reformers and this is taken all the way from uh the medieval period is is kind of summarized in uh, what's called the Lombardian formula. It's named after Lombard, Peter of Lombard. He was uh, a medieval scholastic who wrote uh, a book of sentences. And that book became the standard textbook of kind of the medieval period. So Aquinas writes a commentary on it and others write commentaries on Lombard's sentences. Well, the Lombardian formula uh, is a summary of what Lombard taught. And it basically affirmed two propositions. It affirmed the proposition that Christ died for all sufficiently. And then it also said that Christ also died for the elect alone efficaciously. And so it posits two intentionalities or ordinations in Christ's death. One is that he dies for all sufficiently. And I take that to mean, um, and others have taken that to mean, that Christ 
or is that God had ordained that Christ make a satisfactory atonement for the sins of all people. That is that it was a, a, a universal remedy. We might, we might again talk about in the way that you talked about it is, is that in heaven, uh, there has been made a universal remedy um, such that if you believe, right, you part open the heavens and it, by belief, you drink of that remedy, right? You take it in. But here's the other bit that was also affirmed by the medievals and the reformed definitely wants to affirm this as well. Is, is that there's another intention in the death of Christ, and this is the intention that you get in the canons of Dort. They affirm this intention. They kind of punt on the other intention because others deny it, uh, namely that Christ actually merited um, by his death all the uh, saving benefits that we receive that the elect will receive in time, including faith, uh, our repentance, um, our holiness, and these sorts of things. And so what's going on there is that they're saying that there was not simply an intention to make a satisfaction for all men's sins such that if all believed, all could be saved, a universal remedy, but he, but there's an intention that he is going to bring it about in human beings merited by the death of Christ. So the merit of what Christ did both in his, uh, in his work from cradle to cross, we might say, and even beyond that into his exaltation, he merited um, for the elect, the guarantee that they would actually appropriate that remedy for themselves and so that's what it means for christ to die for the elect alone efficaciously is is that it's not so this is what's denied you, you mentioned uh christ didn't make um uh salvation merely possible but he made it effectual, but he made sure that it would actually happen. And that's what's trying to be affirmed here. So that, but the Lombardian formula would want to say he didn't merely make salvation possible for all. He also made it certain for some. And, and, and that's, and that's what's, so some people want to say he didn't make it. He didn't make it possible for any, for all, he only made it both possible and effectual for the or certain for the elect. And the the kind of broader or the minority reform position is that he would want to say it in the way that I said it earlier. He didn't merely make it possible for all. He made it certain for the elect. But some want to deny that he even made it possible for all. I actually think it's the made it possible for all that I've heard denied even on a popular level. The idea that like um there are actually it's like not only is that when Christ dies and we're using this kind of maybe it's a terrible but but just yeah in in in, in heaven there's that cure but the cure is only for yeah. Michael's sin molecules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ryan's sin molecules. It's yeah. not as a general cure that could cure anybody. Yeah, but God in His and I guess this is how it's 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 in the framework of Reformed well, theology with it, election and all those things. If you go read Death of Death, right, which is which is kind of the classic kind of limited atonement kind of exposition, right? Owen's Death of Death. Mm -hmm. There is no intention in the death of Christ to make the salvation of all possible. There, indeed. He denies that the incarnation has any relation to the non-elect in any way whatsoever, right? He is in the incarnation. He is taking upon himself the persons of the elect. He is not taking upon himself the person, all people whatsoever. He is only the mediator of the elect in any sense whatsoever. And so they would now, now to, to, to kind of it's not steel manning his position because he does this himself. But what he would insist upon is, is that if 
the very means of possibility for anyone to be saved is that their sins have been satisfied. And if 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 the non-elect's sins, if there's a satisfaction that's been made for the non-elect's sins, justice demands God himself is it is there is a right attached to forgiveness such that God cannot keep that person from receiving that forgiveness. They have been an a right has been acquired for that non-elect sinner such that they must not be condemned. And if they are condemned, what you have is Jesus being condemned and the person being condemned. And that is a double, double payment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a right, double payment. Right. And so they're thinking about Owen and, and these folk are thinking about atonement in slightly different ways. And this gets back to how we think about substitutionary atonement and whether or not we think about it in that sort of crass, pecuniary, quid pro quo sort of way. Anyways, I mean, um, I I want to confess as fully as I can, or at least I try to do in these lectures, that he took upon every individual's person as our mediator, but that he had a specific intention uh, with regard to the elect, such that he was um, meriting for the elect things that were not merited for other folk. So there's a there's a particular aspect and a universal aspect. And I think that this is at least the medieval position and the early modern position. And so I'm trying to hold to both of those. But people feel the tension there and they either want to go to one or the other. And I'm wanting to hold both of those together. And I, I realize that that's a hot controversial take. And so um, I'm not, I don't feel but, like I'm going to, you know, necessarily convince people of that, but. Well, your, your take sounded more intuitive, honestly. I mean, just reading the biblical data and, and even just thinking about the incarnation you know, he's uniting all of humanity to himself, but we're not talking about universalism because the benefits of that are only appropriated by the elect. And yet yep. that doesn't mean that he only assumed, I mean, it's not a perfect analogy, but he didn't just assume the humanity of the elect or something like that. I, I mean, I, I, all I can say is I agree. Uh, I think that Calvin talks this way. I think that most of the early reformers talk this way. Hmm. This They are not talking in the way that Owen um, kind of lays it out it seems to me but you know um again i understand that this is you know controversial or well, debated you, I, I, i've often heard too on a practical level people will say things like in evangelism you shouldn't say to someone you, you know is not a christian uh christ died for you or, or that should be part of your gospel illustration of saying christ died for you accept it um and I think that's tied to that particular atonement type idea, perhaps, that you don't want to say Christ died for them because you don't actually know, because you don't know if your sin particles are in his cure that he, you know, uh, formulated in his, in, 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 with his death and resurrection. But right. I guess on your view, you can say, in a qualified sense, Christ died for you and that he has created a yeah. cure that is sufficient for all. Yes. Yes, it seems to me that there's no way that antecedent to someone's belief, you can say that you can tell on a, on the Owenian account, I do not see, and perhaps it's because I'm a bear of not much brain, perhaps it's because, you know, I just haven't understood something correctly. Um, and I, I am willing to confess that I am ignorant of many things. However, I do not understand how you how in a gospel offer you could say God is able, and presumably we what we mean is God is able because of what Christ has done to forgive you of your sins. Um, antecedent to their belief, in other words, when I come with the gospel message, I'm actually coming saying that God is already able to forgive them of their sins. It's not that their belief allows God or enables God. That would make, ironically enough, that would make, that would place an undue emphasis on faith that most reformed people would not want to mm. make as if somehow faith is the mechanism that allows God or enables God 
to forgive someone of their right, sins. Right, right. That's not what we claim. It's simply the reception. It allows us to receive it. We're not, when I say to a, when I say to an unbeliever, God is able to forgive you of your sins. I am saying that God, because of what Christ has done, is now able in a way that he was not able previous to the death of Christ to even offer forgiveness. In other words, I wouldn't even have the gospel offer to a to any unbeliever or to under the Owenian scheme, I wouldn't have anything to offer to a non-elect sinner were it not for the death of Christ. And so therefore what I'm saying to the sinner is that because of the death of Christ, it is now made possible, according to God's righteousness and justice, to offer sins to you, hmm. right? And so, therefore, you have to, it seems to me, have to have this universal aspect. But again, again, I want to emphasize, I realize that this somehow is not seen to be a problem for certain folk and then for other people like me, it does seem to be a problem. So. Well, we're going to title this episode, Why Michael Lynch is Smarter Than John Owen. Well, that'll be the title. Yeah, so it'll uh, be good. That, that, that is definitely, definitely not the truth. Uh, not the truth. So anyways, I, I actually, I actually really like reading John Owen. Um, so anyways, I, I, I do not, there's no, um, no, no beef with Owen. No, 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 no. He should be read. Uh, he's a brilliant, brilliant godly man so um he served the church well well you know maybe just bringing this to a, a close we're talking about all these doctrines and all these types of uh just trying to reason our way biblically through the way god has revealed the mechanism of atonement and how this works how this all fits together but i mean it, you've spent so many years in this what has been personally edifying about this in your study, clarifying these ideas on a personal level, thinking through the atonement and through definite atonement and, and all these types of things. Well, I'm, if I might, um, uh, the, this is the first paragraph of um, Davenant's dissertation on the death of Christ. It's, um, it's the beginning of him talking about the history of the controversy. In other words, mm. all this debate uh, about it, and uh, I, I'm constantly I'm constantly reminded for myself uh, when I discuss these things um, of his of his very first paragraph. And this is, by the way, this is about to be republished by the Davenant Institute. Uh, I re-edited it and awesome. retranslated it, and these sorts of things. And here's the very first paragraph. He says, it is truly a matter of sorrow and great sadness that either from the misfortune or the disease of our age, those mysteries of our religion made known to us for the peace and comfort of our souls are consistently made a topic of litigation and argument. Who could ever have thought that the death of Christ, which was designed to establish peace and destroy en enmity, as the apostle says in Ephesians 2.14 Ephesians 2, 17, Colossians 1, 20 to 21, could have become such a fertile ground for begetting such quarrels. Mm. Yet, this situation seems to arise from the innate curiosity of human beings who are more anxious to scrutinize the hidden purposes of God than to embrace the benefits openly offered to them. Accordingly, because there is so much bickering about the question of for whom did Christ die or for whom did he not die, each of us spends too little time considering that the death of Christ ought to be applied to ourselves by a true and lively faith for the salvation of our own souls. So I think I think in studying all of this, I've also been reminded by Davenant that my main concern ought not to be about these litigious uh, questions, these debates, but I need to constantly remind myself to apply to myself by a true and lively faith, the death of Christ for the salvation of my own soul. And so that's, that's my own, I'm, I'm constantly reminded of that paragraph. It's that's a good well way said. to start a, start a book that is fairly feisty for the early modern period. So 
anyways. It's sort of like knowing a lot about the cure, but but not availing yeah. yourself of it. Yeah, debating about the cure, but not applying it to yourself. It would be a silly thing, would it not? Yeah. So. Yeah. Michael, thank you so much for this. Uh, this was a great interview. Appreciate the work you've done, the labor you've put into this. Uh, we're going to put some links in the show notes. We'll put a link uh, right now at davidantinstitute.org. You can actually order uh, Michael's uh, episodes, the lectures that he's done. They're, they should all be on there. Make sure you check that out. Make sure you support that work. And uh, Michael, it's been great having you on. And again, make sure you check the show notes. Make sure you subscribe and uh, share the podcast with friends. Leave a review and uh, let us know what you think. We appreciate you guys listening in. Thanks for having me on.